Well, welcome. My name is David Deglow, and, and I am here and excited to talk to you guys today. I got, I got to open up our Kingdoms in Conflict series, and I, I get the pleasure of, of also sharing with you guys the last teaching as we close our series and look forward uh, towards our question and answer period next week, which I am really excited about, and I do really encourage you guys to participate in by submitting questions and, and talking with us beforehand. It would be really helpful, and I think an encouraging time where we can share some real application of what's coming out of this series. <clears throat> so this is uh, what we have been talking through this series, and you can see that in all of these, what we're closing with today is preeminence. It's down there in the bottom of the middle, and, and what's been really awesome and just encouraging to see with all across all of the teachers of the teaching team that have been up and all the pastors, just to be able to outline and to come to certain and clear terms about you know, we started this series about, you know, kind of touchy topics, possibly divisive, ones that may arise out of conflict. And we wanted to address them in love and truth and talk through them so that we could all be on the same page. And we close this week with preeminence. And it might seem odd that we started talking about one kingdom and we we're going to end on preeminence and talking about the king of that kingdom. But understand that that we're talking about this today, and we'll see in just a minute here, because this is something that sadly gets overshadowed, I would say, and, and needs some clarity, which we hope to be able to talk through today. The first thing I would like to start with is to understand that the word preeminence is a fairly churchy word. As the, as the spectrum of churchy word goes, I would say it's pretty far down. So let's lay out a definition that we can start with, and then maybe as the morning goes, we'll build uh, a more uh, refined one, and we'll get to a more specific one. We are going to start here. The preeminence is the state or a, a being that surpasses all others. It's marked and known by superiority. <clears throat> what I'd like to do today is to walk forward by asking some questions if I can. And they're not my questions. Our life group has been going through Mark. And, and as we go through it, one of these things that has happened in the weeks of our discussion, we've come across these questions that are illuminating and sometimes a little challenging as, as you walk out that it may be a simple question, but that doesn't change how powerful it can be. So we're going to start here with this first question today. And it is this, it is Jesus talking to his disciples. He's on the road going from location to location and he has some awesome time just to get one-on-one -on -one with his disciples. And that's what he's doing here. And, and he says, so now Jesus went out to the town of Caesarea Philippi and on the road he asked his disciples saying, who do men say that I am? He's engaging them in conversation. He wants them to be able to articulate who men say that he is. He's, he's curious. He's polling the audience, if you will, right? Since he's got a captive audience, they're all stuck in the proverbial car. So they, the royal we, answer, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. You see, even in the time where Jesus is walking the earth and talking with people, there was apparently confusion as to who he was and what impact, what, what his purpose was. Right? And even the disciples are sharing some of that confusion in the communities that they were going to 
and reaching out to, and you know, they see different answers running around, right? And even as we look today, if we were to kind of ask that same question of us today, we could even add some, uncomfortably as it may be, but I would argue that we need to, right? We could, we could say that, that some religions or individuals might also believe that he was just a, emphasis not on the, but a God, little, little case, lowercase g, right? And some may say that he didn't exist. I added this one because if he's asking them a question, it's kind of hard to look at someone and say, you don't exist. Right? That's a little tricky. But, but we need to do that now. And it's not exactly actually funny. So, while that isn't funny, what I would like to do is have a little bit of fun this morning. Would you guys care to join me in some fun? I like to have fun when we're teaching, and, and we like to do engaging activities. And so I'm going to do with you guys one of the things that I find the most fun in life. Are you guys ready? Because no one really seems... Christy's ready. Okay. Hey, guys. We are going to look at some graphs and analyze them. Woo! That's right. Let's do it. Here we go. This is a study done by Barna. It's about 2,000 people that they surveyed. That's a pretty good saver. We're going to get some good data out of this. And the question that they're asking is this. It's a basic one. They're going to ask a couple, and this is the first one. It says, do you believe Jesus Christ was a real person who actually lived? We're not talking about anything. We're stripping it pretty bare bones here. No DD, no who he was, what's his purpose, nothing. Did he actually exist? Good job. I totally agree, sir. I couldn't agree more, actually. Sadly, not everybody does. If we look at the data and we actually look, too, at a trend that is coming in here, and I don't know how I'm going to turn around and look at you guys. About, you can see it, probably. About 4% per generation that's decreasing on a whole. This is just that Jesus actually existed. So we're not even really touching or scratching the surface of the preeminence of Christ yet because we can't even get a unanimous, hey, he existed. Right? And, and let's keep unraveling. I don't want to do this because it's positive. I want to do this because, again, the whole point of some of the topics in this series was so that we know where we're at with the world and we can engage them directly so that we understand where they're at and where we are coming from. So now, I apologize that some of these might get a little bit trickier. If you guys have comfort to trust me, I'll walk you through them some, if that's okay. So the next question actually gets to, I believe Jesus was, and the black, which you can see in these on, on the right-hand side here, says God, right? And that, that green that kind of meshes with the background green. I'm sorry, I didn't make the graphic. It says that they believe that, God, that Jesus was some kind of teacher or prophet, or they're kind of lumping some of that in there so that we can kind of get through something, right? And then that last white, if you see, it's, it's hey, I'm just really not sure. So we're getting, we're getting some resolution here that we understand that maybe there's the bulk or, or some, we're past majority, barely, but just past majority, that will say that Jesus was a, a God. It says, okay, well, let's talk a little bit more about who he was and his character. When he lived on the earth, this is the statement, and then people are going to say whether they strongly agree or disagree with the statement. It says, when, they were, when, when Jesus was on the earth and was human, he committed sin. That's the language. He committed sin. 
just like every other person. Green is agree. Green is agree. And just like what we saw with the first graph, with every generation subsequently agrees that Jesus was a person just like every other person more and more as we go generation to generation. And now in this one, we break down a little bit more. We look at generations again, and again, we see the same thing. We also get some looks at ethnicity and maybe even annual income. I'm going to walk a little bit past these. These slides will all be posted. I'd encourage you to check these out if you want to know more. The article was really well done. It's a, it's a Barna article. I think that I will, ha will be able to link it up when you go to the slides so you can dive in a little bit more. But I want us to be aware, not comfortable, of what we are seeing when people are asked the same question that Jesus is asking, who do men say that I am? And then the last question is one, I, I, was, I was like worried as I was reading these, right? And then quite frankly, I was broken when I got to this last question. So they ask the question that is when you die, I believe you will, and if you can't see it in those parentheses, it says among professing Christians that are committed to Jesus. Now we're going to break these down because there's a lot of graphs and I want to get to this one right here. We're going to start here. There it is. This one right here, 60% say that they believe when they die, they will go to heaven because they have confessed their sins and have accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. 60% of people that profess to be Christians have assurance of where they're going when they will die. There's about 15% if we look at some of these other graphs that say everybody's going to go to heaven. And there's about 15 more. The language is a little bit different. If you group two of the groups together, there's about 15% too that also say that they are going to go to heaven because they've been a good person or they've followed the Ten Commandments to a T. And that rounds out about 90, a little bit plus percent of the people. And then we have some strays that just don't know, or they say that they're not going to go anywhere. Again, remember the alarming group that we are inside of. These are people that are professing to be Christians and relying on Jesus, but they don't apparently know what for, and I'm sorry, but that's the frank statement. And it may sound rude, but it's pretty biblical. So 1 Corinthians 15, this is verses 17 through 19, it says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. I'm a messenger here. I am reading these words. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep, those who have died in Christ are just perished. If we have hope in Christ in this life alone, alone in this life, it says here that we are to be the most pitied. We are the saddest saps. And that's some of the data that we just walked through. So that, that's why we're presenting this today, because it is, it is not comfortable. It is somewhat alarming, but we want to be aware of it, and we want to be able to talk to people and maybe be able to push past that simple question that, frankly, sometimes maybe I even stop at. Maybe we engage them a little bit more and ask them and support them as they refine that, as we really talk about who Jesus Christ is. Because it needs to be a personal 
question, right? It's not, it's not just the Webster dictionary that we started with. Now we're going to get a little bit better because as Jesus is talking, can I get a slide, Ben? As Jesus is talking with his disciples, the first question that he asks, if you remember, it says, who do men say that I am, right? So he's, at, he's polling the audience, who do others, you know, the quote-unquote asking for a friend, right? But now, now that they have discussed that and have worked through that, to some extent, Jesus has turned and said, I need a personal commitment. You guys are my disciples. Who do you say that I am? He needs them to be able to articulate that. He's sending them out. We'll send them out more. They need to be able to speak this. They need to be able to know it. And Peter, good old Peter, first out of the boat, always running. Peter, he goes, you are the Christ. He boils it down in a simple statement. Now, there's a lot to unpack there, but he identifies it. Now, if we remember or, or if we want to read along in the Bible and we follow Peter's life, we know that, no, he doesn't always get it right. right? Later on, he is going to shun, right? As Christ is getting beaten and flogged, he is going to shun that announcement. Now, he comes back to it, and he absorbs it fully as his character, and he lives it for the rest of his life. So that's not to say that at every point in time it is a perfectly articulated answer, but that is it right there. It says, you are the Christ. So what does that mean? I mean, can we unpack that a little bit more? Because I think we need to. So we were helped in this last week when Julian talked us through surrender, and we started talking about, or or we were listening because Julian was talking, and he said that we need to surrender to the kingdom of God, right? And we need to commit ourselves. And he took us to Colossians 1, and we're going to go there again today, and we're going to read a little bit more, and we're going to get our highlighter out and do some underlining, and we are going to wrap around and define this preeminence of Christ a little bit more as we read through just this one passage. Surely, I tell you that you can find it throughout the whole pages of the Bible, because we are limited in our time this morning. How beautiful is it that we can go to one passage and be able to find a lot of the character that defines the preeminence of Christ? So let's, let's read together with this. For this reason, we, we've just started in the book of Colossians here. Paul is excited because he is talking about the faith that he is hearing about in the Colossian church. And that's the, the, the this reason that we are, we are in. So since the day we heard it, we do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing of him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. What Paul has done in these last two verses is talk about our character, if you've noticed that, and he's about to say, basically he's going to expand and unpack what that knowledge of God is now as we look into these next verses. Strengthened with all might according to his glorious power. There's some of the first things that starts to describe Christ, his glorious power. We're going to underline that one, keep it for later. For all the patience and long suffering with joy, because he deals with me. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us, that is the believers, to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light light contrasted, because he has delivered us from the power of darkness. 
and that of death, and conveyed us into the kingdom of his Son, of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Certainly key statement there that we want to make sure that we capture. That in him we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. Not in works. We're going to talk about that in James. I promise it's going to come up again because it is a struggle that we need to talk about pretty continually. He is the image, the he that we're still talking about here is Jesus Christ, right? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. These are short, very compact statements, but they pack punches of heavy weight. We're going to talk about more in a second. We're going to summarize them, I promise. Just hold on for me as we keep walking through. We're almost there. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. In him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. So all of that, it's like all of that was building the definition that he may have the preeminence. So these are some of the things that we underlined. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to present these to you guys here. Again, they're on the slides. We are going to talk through these right here and summarize them. But there is a ton to unpack. Use these as like bulleted lists that you can expand and study into. Right? So what we talked about with the preeminence of Christ, and we're moving through that, that kind of Webster's definition of preeminence. Right? And we see now the glorious power Right, as we read through the Bible, we, we know that his power usurps all. And that we have redemption through his blood. This is an awesome one. The image of the invisible God. Right, who are we? Remember who we are. We are image bearers. Not the image, image bearers. Right? So we partake in some of that. This is saying that he is the image. The perfect image of the invisible God. And so it just shows then it kind, of, and kind of walks into that next one, which is the firstborn over all creation, right? He is perfection because he's the image of the invisible God. And firstborn here, don't, don't get too hung up because I, I, we can unpack it if you, if you want to. I promise, I'm a very honest. Come see me. And we can unpack firstborn, but just understand that what this is hinting back to is some of that where we talked about that that. All things are through him and for him, right? That he is, he is the vessel at which creation flows out of. And, and we were, remember at the beginning of John, it says the word was, a, right? That we're not doubting or we're not saying that he's created. We're saying that he's the firstborn of creation. And then it also highlights that Christ is the head of the church, which we are a part of. And so we, as a congregation, we as pastors, we stand under him as the authority, the head of the church. And then almost tying back to some of the earlier ones, says that Christ is the firstborn from the dead. How beautiful that that is right there. Because we're going to talk about, and certainly as we look to take communion, that he 
provided that redemption in his blood. Because not only, it said, remember when we were in that, that verse earlier, it said that if we do not believe in just Jesus in this life, but in his redemption, and that he is risen, right, our faith was useless. So now I have a question for you guys. Those are the two questions that we're going to walk through from Scripture in Mark 8. And I have a question for you guys, and it is this. Who do you say that Jesus is? We read in Mark, when Jesus asked of of the disciples, who do men say that I am? And then Jesus got even more personal and he said, who do you say that I am? And now, as a loving pastor of you guys, I want to ask a very distinctive question that I hope and pray that you have some comfort to be able to answer. But not just answer as as a challenge, like this isn't actually a rhetorical question. This is one that you want to be able to answer because you want to be able yourselves, just as Jesus was asking the disciples and wanted them to be able to articulate, you want to be able to articulate, who do you say that Jesus is? What is your testimony that Jesus is to you? We're going to pick back up. Ben, can I get a next slide? For some, oh, we went too far. That was on me. For some encouragement in, in walking through this, We're going to take some time this morning just in reflection. But before we go into that time of reflection, I'd like to take us back to 1 Corinthians 15 and read through a couple of verses here. It says, Now I make known to you, brothers and sisters, the gospel, which I preached to you, which you also received, in which now you stand. That's the progression of where this audience is at. This is Paul talking to the Corinthians. It says, By which you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word which I have preached to you, unless you believe in vain. And that's the encouragement to take hold of this, to understand it, to be able to, to take that simple question and not be like, oh, panic, who, did, who do I say Jesus is? It's just to be able to say, I know who Jesus is. Paul says, for I handed down to you as first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. And he was buried, and then he was raised on the third day according to Scripture. So we're going to take communion now. And I want you guys, this is more of a reflective time. I want you guys to think about that question and to think about the verse that we just walked through. That of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he was raised. That his blood was spilled. We take communion not, not as some artifact of the past, but, but as remembrance and affirmation, right? We are affirming what we are reading in Scripture, that he gave his body and his blood for us. So take a couple of minutes right now. If you have a family, do this as a family. If you're couples or, or maybe even individually, take a moment in reflection And just pray to God. Tell him who you say that he is. Just start that. Jesus Christ, I just want to tell you. And then then thank him as we remember and take this time of communion. Go ahead and take a couple of minutes. As we bring this time of communion to a close, I'd like to read to you a little bit more from 1 Corinthians 15. This is the end. 
of the chapter. <coughs> Excuse me. And quite frankly, I see it as a bit of a battle cry. We're picking up in verse 53 here. This is 1 Corinthians 15, 53. It says, For this corruptible, talking about a person here, must put on the incorruptible. And this mortal must put on immortality. Right? This is the same chapter that we've just been talking about how that is done. And the, with the acceptance of Jesus Christ as Lord. So then shall be brought to pass, saying that it is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? For the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God, who gave us the victory through Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And so, Ben, can you go one more slide? Thank you. So from that and that question that we asked earlier, I'll be frank in that I had another one for you guys that I want to leave you with, and I want and I would really ask that you walk through this today, that you think about it some, and even as we go through the week. And it's this that we get through at the end of this chapter. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. You see, and again, this hints to what we will talk about some in James or throughout James. It's that it's not just that we would be able to articulate the preeminence of Christ. It is that our lives to be our testimony to that. So the question today is twofold. It's not just who do you say that Jesus is, but it is who does your life say that Jesus is? For you have been called for this purpose because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you would follow his steps. The preeminence of Christ goes so far as to continue to be an example for us that we are to walk out our maturity, our faith in Christ in our lives, as he did. And we follow in his footsteps. So who do you say that Jesus is? And who does your life say that Jesus is? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that, God, not only do you ask those questions, but in your, in your wisdom, in your kindness, God, you give us scripture that shows us who you are. God, I, I pray this morning that we review that, that we take stock of that, God, that we take ownership of that. Get the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ, and who he is, that he is the preeminent one, God, that he is the king that we saw, saying about earlier, that he is the king of your kingdom. He's the king of our kingdom as we submit to him, God, and we, we praise you for that as well as, God, we we ask that that be the testimony of our lives. Amen.